Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for being here today in the South Hills, and we want to welcome all our campuses in Robinson, in Washington, in Wilkinsburg, in Ross Traver, DeBerry, and all of you who join us online each week. It, it's great we can come together as one church in God's Word. So two quick things in addition to what Bob shared with you uh, to make you aware of. One, if you have your program with you at any campus, uh, inside is a Bible Chapel Communications Survey. We're asking you over the next two weeks to take one of these fill it out. You can drop it off at starting point at the campuses here in the South Hills. There's bins on your way out. This is part of our strategic planning process. We want to get better and more effective in many areas, including what's the best way to communicate to our congregation. So if you could do that, it'd be great. If you could do it not during the sermon, that'd be great. And uh, just make sure you try to get that done uh, for us. That can greatly help us. Also, in addition to, to Mother's Day, you know, Bob shared about cool things going on uh, that weekend, next weekend. Uh, in two weeks from today, on Sunday, May 19th, at the 1045 a.m. service across all our campuses, uh, we're going to spend the final 15 minutes of that service recognizing high school seniors who are graduating. And uh, we're going to spend some time praying over them. And in each campus has their own uh, special thing they're doing for, for high school graduates. I mention that because if you are a high school senior or a parent of a high school senior who for some reason at any of our campuses we don't have your information or you're not connected, we want to recognize you. We want to make sure we don't miss out on anyone. So if you can, uh, make sure you stop at Starting Point or even call the main office at any of our campuses tomorrow and one of our student ministry uh, pastors will follow up with you to get your information. All right, let's pray before we jump into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for today. And again, we, we praise you for this uh, opportunity we have each week that we can come together as one church across the different areas that you have led us to serve to study your word. God, every time we open your word, we want to hear from you. Therefore, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and pleasing to you. Father, speak to us as only you can this morning. And we commit this time in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we live in a social media in digital age that our communication now pretty much funnels through digital communication. So much so is that many believe the art of handwritten letters or handwritten notes is somewhat lost with this generation. The convenience of communication through email, Facebook, FaceTime, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, I can keep going, right? has made communication actually much easier in many ways. It's amazing what technology has done, fantastic in many ways. And there are still some things that we would say digital communication cannot replace. For instance, uh, my birthday was this weekend, and I've gotten so many posts on Facebook, right? On your birthday, if you're on Facebook, that's the day that your news feed gets lit up, right? People posting happy birthday. People, sometimes you don't even know who they are, but you're thankful for their love on your birthday. And there's still nothing, though, like receiving a handwritten card from someone in the mail. How many of you would agree? There's nothing like that, right? Knowing that they went to Giant Eagle, Rite Aid, wherever, picked out that perfect card, wrote those thoughtful words, 
Spent about an hour going through the house trying to figure out where the stamps are. <laughs> Placed it on that envelope and sent it to you. There's nothing like it. Uh, for example, uh, my wife's late grandmother, Grandma Pete, was the expert on the birthday card. She would take pictures throughout the year of her children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and she would use those pictures to send them personalized birthday cards every year. She would do something like this. Here's an example of my wife from years ago. And don't worry, I got permission to show this. She just asked that no one looks at this awkward middle school photo. Don't look at this, okay? <laughs> Stop looking at it right here. She just wanted to make sure you did. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Make sure you don't look at that one. But Grandma Pete would write these personal remarks, and then on the backside, typically, a personal note. Uh, Kristen, her cousins, and when I was married into the family, we loved receiving those cards from Grandma Pete. And she would strategically mail them on the right day, depending where she was sending them, to arrive right on your birthday. How many of you have saved cards or letters from years ago from different people? Maybe it was a, a love letter from your spouse when you were just dating. Maybe it was a little note, that's all it took, a simple note from someone who encouraged you during the toughest of times. Loss of job, family trouble, illness. There's something about personal touch, that personal letter or note that you just can't replace with short bursts of digital communication. What's interesting is millennials who grew up in this age, they agree as well. New York Post survey last year showed that 87% of millennials say they value handwritten notes and letters more than alternative means of communication. There's nothing like it. If you've been with us since February, we've been traveling through a letter, a personal letter written to churches around Ephesus by the Apostle John during this period of time. We're going to take a break from our first John series and revisit that in June because for the next four weeks, we're going to look at John's two shorter letters, second and third John. These short letters are thoughtful and personal by John, written to a specific audience, as we'll see, that desperately needed this message that God inspired him to pen and send them to him right when they needed to hear it. In the Bible, here are the five shortest books in the Bible based off their original languages and words. Jude, 461 words. Obadiah, short minor prophet, Old Testament, 440 words. Then it really drops down. Philemon, 335 words. Then we get to 2nd and 3rd John. 2nd John, just 245 words. 3rd John, 219 words. It's been said, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Well, in Scripture, do not judge the significance of a book by its length. These two short letters written by John are inspired by God. They are greatly impactful, theologically rich, and they are just as authoritative today for us as they were 2,000 years ago to the original recipients. 
Open your Bibles to 2 John this morning. Uh, we're going to begin two weeks with 2 John, two weeks in 3 John. Now, the theme in both 2 and 3 John is the same. He uses this exact same phrase. 2 John verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. For I rejoiced greatly, 3 John verse 3, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. For John, as the last living apostle, he found no greater joy than to know that the church was not just filled with head knowledge of the truth, but was walking in the truth. That word walk in the Greek is this word peripateo. It means to follow, to regulate one's life. It means you live by the truth of God's word. And as we'll see in 2 John, He's writing to a local church. So think about when I say the church today, I'm not talking about the global church, right, the body of Christ as a whole. He's writing to a small C local congregation. It's as if John's writing to the Bible chapel. And he's telling them that if you claim to walk in the truth, then first and foremost, you better exemplify what it means to love one another in truth. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. That's going to be our text this morning in 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only, lie, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Unlike 1 John, he begins this second letter with a more formal greeting. He calls himself the elder. This is not so much the office of the elder in a local church, but the Greek here is the affectionate term meaning the old man. John is late in his years. He wrote these letters between 85 and 95 A.D. He's, around, he's somewhere in his 70s or 80s when life expectancy was really around 50 years old. As a young man, John was brash, arrogant, and selfish. So much so, Jesus gave John and his brothers James the nicknames Sons of Thunder. But John aged well. He still writes and thinks very direct in black and white, hence why these letters are so to the point. But he now writes with a veteran sense of care and shepherding. And to whom John writes to, he calls the elect lady and her children. Some say that John's writing to a literal woman and her children. But really, when we look at the content here, John is using personification to talk about the local church. He's writing to a local body, the elect lady, and her children as the congregation. 
This is supported in verse 13, because at the end of this letter, John says, the children of your elect sister greet you. It's highly unlikely that literal children of a literal sister sent their greeting with John. That's another church body congregation sending their greeting with John to this church. And underneath this overarching theme of walking in the truth, John begins both 2nd and 3rd John with this exact same phrase in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. The elder, the beloved Gaius, we'll get to that in 3rd John, whom I love in truth. That phrase can mean two different things. Either John is saying, whom I love genuinely, like I truly do love you, or John is saying, whom I love in truth, meaning the gospel. My love for you flows right through here. At the end of verse 1, it supports that John is talking about the gospel here because he says that not only I, but all those who know the truth. John is speaking of the truth of God's word. And the word know, K-N-O-W, in the Greek in verse 1 is the word inasko. He's writing to people who have no God, meaning through personal relationship. He's writing to a local church. He's writing to believers. And he says, I love you in truth. In Scripture, there are multiple forms of love, and we don't have time this morning to break them all down. But here in 2 John, he uses the highest form of love we see in Scripture. He uses this word, many of you are probably familiar with it, agape. When you see this word agape, it is a noun in the Greek. So when you see that word, it first and foremost represents who God is. It describes who God is. It represents that he is love. He is an unconditional, steadfast, sacrificial, infinite, and pure, loving God. We see this in 1 John 4, 16 in his first letter. So we have come to know and to believe love that God has for us. God is love. He is agape. John says, God defines love. Love does not define God. God does not fall in love. He is love. He's the source of love. And as human beings, the only way to experience God who is love is he acts out on his love. And whenever we see that in scripture, it's the verb form of agape. Agapao. This is a verb. When we see this in scripture, think about this. Based off who God is, who's the source of love, this is how God acts. Everything that God does is agapow. When he creates, it's love. When he forgives, it's love. When he disciplines, it's love. When he judges, it's love. And many know this verse, John 3:16. When God so, it's that verb, 
agapau the world. The God who is love took action on his love when he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins. I give that background because that same word agapau that describes love from God who is the source of love, John in this letter says that's the same love we're called to show one another. We're called to show agapau. First, he refers to himself. He says, whom I love. He uses that word, agapau. John says, my love for you is not based on selfish ambition, the church I want you to be. It's not based on sentimental feelings or emotional reaction. No, my love for you is based in the source of love, God who is love, who is truth. And he says, and I desire for you, same word, to agapow one another, to be a church who loves one another in truth. John is saying, look, church, I desire for you to make the willful choice to love one another from the source of love, to love one another through God's word who is love and through his truth. The only way a church can be a church who truly agapows one another if our actions towards one another flows from his word. So the question is, what does this look like practically for a local church? If John is writing to a small C church, let's say he's writing to the Bible chapel, what would be the benchmarks for that church to say, yep, we're doing it. We are actually walking in the truth, beginning with how we interact with one another, how we love one another. Well, I see four benchmarks from John, and that's our focus for the rest of our time. Let's look at verse 4 to start. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth as commanded by the Father. When John says some, it's not so much like some were walking in the truth and some were not. Most likely he says some, meaning those whom he had actually interacted with and met during his travelings before writing this letter. And John's joy in interacting with some of the members of this congregation is that he could tell by their actions that they were actually behaving as commanded by the Father, meaning living in obedience to the truth of God's word as communicated through Jesus Christ and the apostles. Think about it. By observing some of the members of this congregation he interacted with, he could tell they got it. They're living this thing out. The only way for that to happen is this. The first step for a church to be one who loves one another in truth is that we have the commitment of every believer to be in God's word. If God is the source of love, the only way our love can flow from him is that we must be in his word every day. If someone were to ask me, how can I do a better job of loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, I would probably say, just read this book and do what it says. Probably in a nicer way. But that's basically what John is saying. Agapau, one another, John says, first and foremost, it's not this try harder charge. 
He says it's an abide more charge. Submit more charge. It begins with every member of that local community saying, I am committing myself to daily be in God's word and allow his spirit who resides in every believer to empower us to actually live this out. And that's the second thing. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, and this is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. It's one thing to be a church who is all about the word of God. That it's our number one value of us, church. If you walked to any one of our campuses, you would see it somewhere like the middle of our starting point wall, word right there. We're going to preach on it. We're going to study it. Our core groups are going to be in it. But the next step is, are we actually walking in it? Are we actually living this thing out? And that's the second part. It needs the commitment a church does of every believer to walk in the full counsel of God's word. John, who is brief and to the point, says, I got one ask of you in verse 5. One ask, obedience. Obedience, that you would actually do what God's word says. So let's get practical with this even further. If John was writing to the Bible chaplain, and he was saying, I have one ask of you to live in obedience What are some areas that we could put under this heading of loving one another in truth? Well, maybe John would say this. And now I ask you to love in truth as husband and wife. That when it comes to the marriages of the Bible chapel, they love their spouse according to God's word. Ephesians chapter 5 says, commit yourselves to love one another, not based off just physical attraction, not based off selfish ambition, not based off what your spouse does and can't do for you. That's the world standard because when that stuff starts to fade, so do marriages because they're not rooted in truth. To love in truth, husbands are called to love their bride as Christ loves the church, to sanctify her. Guide her in the word, cherish her, lead her with servant leadership. When's the last time you led your wife in the word of God? When's the last time you told your bride she's beautiful? When's the last time you served her in some manner without any direct reason or cause? You just did. And wives, to love your husbands in truth, you're called to honor and respect your husbands as the head of your home, as, Christ respe- as the church respects and honors Christ as the head of the church. When's the last time you told your husband you're proud of him? You told him you respect him and his leadership. I say all these things not to beat up husbands and wives this morning, but th- this is what we're called to if we're going to love one another in truth. Do what this book says. Two equals, one flesh, biblically living out their roles in love according to God's truth. Maybe John would also say this, and now I ask you to love in truth as parents. 
that every parent at the Bible chapel commits themselves to train up their children in the word of God, that it's not just the church leadership's responsibility, but we own this as parents. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Through love and truth, we teach our children the word of God. When's the last time you set aside time in your home for family devotions? And for parents whose children are older and have moved out, it's never too late to reach out to them. Tell them you love them. Tell them you're praying for them. Send them scripture periodically to speak into their lives. Invite them back to church if they've been disconnected. Maybe John would say this to the church. Bible Chapel, I ask you to love in truth by serving one another. That every one of us would commit ourselves to using our God-given gifts to serve one another as God's word calls us to do. 1 Peter 4.10, and each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Serve one another, not because it's good for you or this particular season in your life. We're all in to use our gifts to serve one another because that's how we love one another in truth. And now I ask you, love in truth by forgiving one another. That if we ever have bitterness or resentment in our heart towards a brother or sister in Christ, that we commit ourselves to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as in God Christ forgave you. And we should never forget that God has willfully chosen to remember our sins no more. Hebrews 8.12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Sometimes we say, God has forgotten my sin. That's not accurate. It actually robs him of his love. He hasn't forgotten. No, he has willfully chosen to remember your sins no more. So if we are a church who loves one another in truth, full of sinners saved by grace who will hurt one another, it means when we say, I forgive you, you choose to remember that act no more. You don't say, I forgive you. And then go over here to your brother and sister and say, can you believe this? It means we mean it. For a healthy church, a strong church, it means we forgive by love and truth. We don't do fake forgiveness around here. When we say we forgive someone, we choose to remember it no more. John might ask this, thinking of the, the National Day of Prayer this week. And now I ask you to love in truth as a congregation through prayer. That the Bible chapel would be known as a church of prayer who prays for one another and gathers corporately to seek God's direction as a church. 1 Timothy 2.1, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. A healthy church is a praying church. We started this year bringing back congregational prayer, third Monday of every month at every single campus from 6 to 7 p.m. on the third Monday night of the month, we gather for prayer. I ask you, as we love in truth, 
that if you can be there, make it a commitment to pray together. And I get schedules get crazy, and sometimes there's just things you can't change. Well, maybe somewhere in that hour, wherever you're at, you're going to commit some time to pray for our church, pray for one another. Think about it, about 4,000 people across all our campuses, maybe 2,500 adults. What if 2,500 people were praying together in the same hour? That's a healthy church. That's a church committing to love one another in truth. May we be a prayerful church all together. One more. You could go on and on, right? Maybe John would say this, and now I ask you to love in truth as witnesses for Jesus Christ, that you would share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Loving in truth is not just dropping Facebook posts about the things in culture today. Loving in truth is not judging the lost. It's loving the lost by sharing the message of Jesus Christ with them. May we be a church who loves in truth by sharing the truth with those who don't know him. John says God is the source of love. He's agape. And in order for us to agapow one another, every action we have towards one another needs to flow from his word. Third, a church who loves one another in truth is also committed to never allow culture to redefine truth and love. He begins this in the first half of 2 John and hits it hard in the second half. But we see this. He says that truth abides in us and be with us forever. This truth that we hold on to, this truth that we love in, is the truth that we have heard from the beginning. We're supposed to do this just as we have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. John's going to get into this in the second half of his letter that we'll hit next week, that this church was under attack, false teaching. He talks about the deceivers who were trying to redefine truth. And John says, hold on and protect the truth of God that does not change what you heard from the beginning from Jesus Christ and his teaching through the apostles. We live in a day and age where as much as any other generation, God's truth is under attack. Right now, forget millennials, we're in the situation of Generation Z. Generation Z is the 8-year-old to the 24-year-old. If you have a child in that range, they are Generation Z. And they are the first generation that is said to be post-Christian. They're growing up in a post-Christian generation. That means they are growing up in a culture that is trying to completely redefine truth and love. They're growing up in a generation that tells them, you know what, truth changes from generation to generation and from age to age. John says, no. God's truth never changes. It's with us forever. Don't, don't go off track here. God's truth doesn't change. And Gen Z is growing up in a generation, completely distorted view of love. Love no longer is based in absolute truth. Love is now this. I'm going to love you by accepting whatever you perceive to be true for you as true, 
That's how I love you. That's not love. That's bankrupt. That's relativism. We're going to hit this hard in the summer and into the next year. And next week, I'm going to share with you in more detail our vision to get serious about approaching this next generation, serious about these areas of truth and love in our culture today. This summer, we're going to do a summer apologetic series entitled Relevant Faith. It's going to be a six-part series through August and September, and we're going to hit those top questions that people have today surrounding these areas of truth and love. We're going to have our teenagers at every campus, our teenagers will be in the worship center all summer long with us as we address these issues because we as the church need to step up and not let culture tell the next generation what truth and love is, but we as the church own this to show them, to guide them, to represent what it means to love in God's truth. We're going to own that. Next week, I'm going to share a broader vision of what this means for the church, including this series as a launching pad into some things we'll be offering to help parents of teenagers Really looking forward to this. So if you have Mother's Day plans to go away and see family, cancel them. <laughs> cancel. <laughs> Be here. No, don't do that. That's not loving in truth. Uh, that's why we have the online service and we have all our sermons uh, videoed. But, but I'm serious. We are excited for this. Uh, next week and second half of Second John, he hits false teaching. And we're going to share a little more with you about where we see we can take some steps ahead to be proactive, not reactive, to what our next generation is experiencing. One more. John says, if you're a church who has every believer committed to being in the Word, you're a church that has every believer to choose to walk in the full counsel of God's Word, if you have every believer committed to protecting the Word of God, you're basically doing this. You are simply expressing what we have already experienced in Jesus Christ. John, in the middle of his introduction, says these beautiful words. He says, grace. Grace is what we did not deserve. We deserved separation from God for eternity. But because of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we can have forgiveness of our sins. Mercy represents what we did deserve that God did not place on us, but placed on his son. Eternal judgment, eternal separation from God. God's mercy was that his wrath does not fall on us, but when we trust in Jesus, it falls on Jesus. And he says this beautiful word, peace. Think about this as eternal security. He says the grace of God, his mercy, and his peace comes to those who have trusted in his son and Jesus Christ. And he says all of this comes from those same two words, the truth and love of God. The truth of his word that says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. God, fully God, sent his son to take on flesh, to bear your sin and mine. And he did this through the expression of his love. For God so loved his divine ambition that he sent his one and only son. In simplest terms, John is saying this that we see in 1 John 4, 19. We can only love because he first loved us. 
We're not talking about what the world wants to call love. We can only love the way God designed us to love because we have first experienced the love of Christ, the love of Jesus Christ alone. And that's why, as we prepare to close, I said that John and 2 John is all about believers. He is. This is a message to the church. But this message of truth, love, grace, mercy, and peace is also for those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ. You can never truly experience grace, mercy, and peace in your life without Jesus Christ. Yeah, you might have temporary peace because finances are okay right now or your relationships are going well or your social status doing pretty good. But all that stuff will one day fade. Only Jesus Christ and trusting in him as your Lord and Savior will give you the eternal peace to know that whenever your day runs out here on earth, you breathe that last breath, you know with confidence where you're going to spend eternity. If you have never experienced true love from the source of love, we invite you today to say, I believe the truth of God's word, that God sent his son to do what I could not do on my behalf. God took on flesh through his son, Jesus Christ, and paid the penalty for me on the cross. And today, I profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead. And I believe that he's the only way to an eternal relationship with the living God. And you will receive a love that's not finite. God's love for you is infinite. It will never run out. And as the Bible chapel, how are we doing? How are you doing playing your part to love one another in truth? Are we abiding in God's word? Are we walking in God's word? Are we protecting God's word? And can people look at us at every campus and say, you know what about that Bible chapel? They are a church that definitely expresses what they say they have experienced. We're going to close in this same song at every campus as they get ready to, to sing. The chorus of the song simply goes like this. Because of your cross, my debt is paid. Because of your blood, my sins are washed away. And can you sing these final two lines with a pure heart this morning? Do you really mean them? Now all of my life I freely give. God, it is all for you. My time, my talents, my treasures, everything I have, it's for you, and I want to give it by the way I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of your love, because of your love, I live. Would you stand as we close in song?
Jesus, you endured my pain. Savior, you bore all my shame. Oh, because of your love. Maker of the universe. Broken for the sins of the earth. Oh, because of your love. Oh, because of your love. Because of your cross, my debt is paid. Because of your blood, my sins are washed away. Now all of my life, I free.
we could uh, pray for you in any, any form or fashion this morning, please do not leave. We will have a prayer team up front who would love to pray with you before you go. Father, as we go this morning, um, God, it is uh, amazing to think that by your spirit who resides in the heart of every believer, although we leave physically, we're still united by your spirit. And as one church, wherever we go this week, our different communities, neighborhoods, places of work, schools, that we would be a church that truly exemplifies what it means to walk in the truth of God, what it means to love one another in truth. And Father, we do all of this as our expression of what you have already done for us and we have experience through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the time we had together as a corporate body. And now we go out to be your vessels of love and truth in a world that desperately needs it. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.